more than half of my portfolio are passive investments. And so that is a longer time horizon, right? And it's not very predictable, but I love doing that. And so I've, I'm like dual tracking it, right? I'm doing that and I have goals that I, that I try to reach from that perspective. And then I also have the active. And so I knew I wanted to do active right away. We talked about that because I, I had built the house. I had done a few other things. I had flipped some houses and, and, and I, I felt that I was very good being a little more hands-on. I'll never forget that day when I asked myself the question, is this it? Is this all there is to strive for in life? That day, I set out on a journey to find more. Now, I am sitting down with the most fulfilled to teach us the tools and tips they use to get there so we can do it faster. Think different, earn different, live fulfilled. This is Contrarian Cashflow. Welcome in Contrarian Cashflow. Today, I've got Matt Pacheni with me. Matt, what is going on? Loving life, man. <laughs> it's a beautiful, hey, sunny day here and things are good. Can't beat that, right? Loving life. That's that's what we're all here for, right? I mean, the money and the cash flow and all that stuff is great, but at the end of the day, happiness and, and freedom is what it's all about, right? I agree. All right. Well, so for those folks that don't know, Matt has just an amazing background all over the place. So former actor, producer, digital marketing executive, business owner, real estate investor, currently working on authoring a book and, and had some tr- amazing articles as well. And a, a, most importantly, above all else, an ama- amazing father and husband. So Matt, what uh, what do you and the crew have going on right now? Right now? Well, you've got a lot of stuff going on in our lives right now. Biggest thing is, I mean, I don't, I'm not even sure how far in advance you record your podcast, but we're moving pretty soon back to New York City. So uh, I lived in New York City for 25 years. And uh, I've the last six years, I've lived outside of the city. I was in Miami for two years, and I've been in Boston for the past four. But um, we're moving back to New York at the end of the summer, and uh, super excited about that. It should be a lot of fun. No, and hopefully it's a good time, right? You know, maybe taking advantage of uh, some of the depression in the in the housing prices there to <laughs> to get in well, quick. Interestingly enough, actually, there really isn't, from what I've seen, too much of a depression in the in the prices in New York City. It's still New York City. And we own a townhouse um, that we purchased when we lived there. So we've just been renting that out. It's been cash flowing for the past six years. So we're moving back to that place, which is actually, I I did look at the numbers and it's actually uh, more cost effective for us to move in there. And so, so we're, we're super excited about that. Should be, should be a good time and, and just moving back to our, to our old place. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And obviously a ton of congruence there with, uh, with, with your background and, and obviously what your wife does. So, well, I do want to jump in a little bit to your story, right? And I just think it's so interesting because majority of real estate investors, you know, kind of come from boring backgrounds, right? They're engineers, <laughs> they're, they're salespeople, they're, you know, but how often do you get to talk to somebody that started in theater and acting? So I guess kind of give us a little bit about your origin story and how'd you get from where you started to, to where you are today? Yeah, well, so I moved, I, I grew up in Orlando, Florida, and I moved to New York City to pursue a career in theater. I went to a musical theater conservatory, graduated from there and was a professional actor and actually a working actor. I did a lot of shows uh, for about five years. I was uh, in 15 different productions throughout the United States. Actually, a lot of the shows that I did were tours or regional theater productions. And, and I did some things in New York as well. And Towards the end of that career, I kind of segued. I didn't really make a decision like, oh, I'm not going to act anymore. But what happened for me was I started, I, I used to wait tables actually in between acting gigs at the Hard Rock Cafe. And I started doing some computer stuff on the side. And I taught myself, HTML. it was like a hobby. I, I was interested. The internet had just come about, right? AOL, everyone was doing AOL and it was the new thing. And I started playing around with building a website. And one thing led to another. Um, I go into to great detail on all this stuff in, in, in the book that you had mentioned earlier. We can talk more about that later. But that I, I started doing more like website building, the website development. And, and then I was doing that for a number of years. I had my own company doing it. The dot-com bubble burst. I went in house at one of my clients, which was Showtime, the cable television channel. And I sort of was doing the corporate America digital marketing. I mean, corporate America, but in the advertising world. So not, not really wearing like a suit and tie to work, but still climbing the corporate ladder in, in New York City. 
and, and I did that for a little over 18 years. During the last 10 years, I started investing in real estate as a hobby. It was something that I was interested in. And I had done some projects, building some websites for friends, not you know, that was not part of my day job. And so I had some money from that and wanted to invest it in something. And I didn't want to invest it in the stock market. I was doing, you know, 401k at work and putting a good amount of money into that. So I wanted to do something a little different. And I started investing in real estate. I had, I ended up purchasing personal residence and then real estate investments. And I just kind of grew from there. You know, my, my first real estate purchase was a primary residence. I don't know if that's really a traditional sort of like real estate investment, although it is an investment. And what happened was within about two, a little over two years, I sold the place. The, the place had more than doubled in value and my equity in, in, the, in the property had more than quadrupled. And so I sold that and traded up to a better place in, in a more, in, I think a more desirable part of town, a part of town that I wanted to live in. The, the first place was not necessarily, it was a great place, but just not my my number one choice. And I had made all this money right on that sale, quadrupled my equity. I was like, wow, this is, this is incredible. And so shortly thereafter was when I first made my first uh, real estate investment, which was a purchase of some raw land um, that was buildable in Connecticut. And I built what in my initial intention was that it was going to be a, a vacation home, right? A getaway from living in, you know, the concrete jungle of Manhattan to sort of get away and have some trees. And uh, it was in a, a, a community that had a lake. It wasn't lakefront property, but it was pretty close. And I learned a ton by building a, a house from, I mean, I bought raw land. We knocked trees down and, and built, dug a foundation and built an entire house. I learned a ton through that. But what that journey, that set me on the journey, right? To doing real estate investment, because what ended up happening was, there was a very strong rental market that I was not tuned into. I thought that I could do that to sort of defray my costs, but it ended up that the place was was a full-time apartment, uh, vacation home rental, like since the day it was, I got that certificate of occupancy. And I didn't make, <laughs> I didn't make money off of it. It wasn't cash flowing. I was pretty much like breaking even because I didn't know what I was doing to begin with. And that was never my intention at the beginning to, to rent it full-time. Uh, a number of circumstances came up that led to that doing that, but I, I learned a ton through the experience of the actual building of a house and financing and accounting matters and things like depreciation that I had no exposure to previously. And so I learned a lot and it sort of went from there. I, I started getting involved in, in some single family fix and flips and then ultimately landed in in the multifamily world, and that you know we we my wife got an opportunity out of the blue that had us moving out of New York and down to Miami, and with that I made the transition from working in the sort of corporate advertising world into trying to see if I could do real estate full time, and you know I had a number of years of experience. I had built up you know a decent little nest egg that I could use to help start my business. And my wife had a good job. So I had a number of things going for me. It's not like I had just graduated college or, and was just going right for it, you know. And I had 10 years of real estate experience by the time I went full-time. And it's been great. And so, so I've been doing that full-time for over six years at this point, buying mainly multifamily you know, large-scale apartment complexes and, and, and doing those through a syndication model. That's awesome. I mean, just so much to unpack there. So I'm super curious on the front end. So like, I think so many of us are becoming so much more competent in just branding, digital marketing. I mean, just in general, right? I mean, I think so many of us have to have some semblance of a personal brand or footprint, even if it's just a personal website, right? And so I think that's one thing that I know that I'm continuing to educate myself on, but I'm kind of curious, like from an acting perspective, what did you, you, and you know, and then all this ties into psychology, right? I mean, so being an actor, you know, understanding, you know, how you want the audience to feel from, from the pre performance that you're giving isn't too dissimilar from, you know, from the marketing side, at least from, from an outsider looking in. So, so what did you kind of learn from the acting that, that allowed you to be successful in the marketing or, or am I, am I totally off base? Is it, is it, uh, is it quite <laughs> different than between the two? Well, I, I, I think there are similarities between the two. I think you're right there. 
what I will say is that as an actor, I don't know that this is probably just getting way too much like inside baseball, but like the, the, the maybe wanting to figure out how an audience is going to feel or something like that is I think a little bit more um, for the writer or for the director as an actor, you know, my job and my craft was to basically live under whatever those imaginary circumstances that the play um, or the musical, whatever the show is presents. Right. So it was really about me embodying that character. And quite honestly, I didn't care how the audience felt. I'll tell you an interesting story. This just came to mind. I don't think I've ever told anyone this story. Back in my early days when I was an actor, I went in for an audition. And it was one of the early, it was like one of my first auditions. <clears throat> and I sang a song. And the song was, um, it, it's a soldier and, and he's dying, okay, in the song. And I did it. And I, and I used, you know, the, the, the method that I had been taught where, you know, I'm, I'm living under these imaginary circumstances, right? And I have, I don't want to get too into it, but I was doing it properly, at least the, the way that I felt was proper uh, method for, for, for doing acting. And the casting director who was there, and the person who's helping make the decisions, this was in the first round, she was in tears, okay, by my performance. And I got a call back. And this was for a very prestigious off-Broadway company. So I was so excited and I went in for the audition and now she's there, the, the like the junior casting director and the more senior casting director and the director, I don't know, a bunch of, a whole bunch of people, they're all at a table and I sing the song and it's like deadpan on everybody. And then I leave and I was, and I realized afterwards my intention, like what I was thinking about during that, you know, the first time was I was trying to live. I didn't want to die. And that's where my focus and my my thought was, right? This time, my thought was, I want to make them cry, okay? And I was trying to get the audience to have a certain reaction. And through that, I actually, it was not nearly as effective as, as watching somebody really tr struggling and trying to stay alive. And so when it comes to theater and acting and things like that, I don't know about the audience, but I will say that I feel that, you know, when it, when it comes to acting and the, the, the skill sets that are directly translatable to the work that I'm doing now, <clears throat> being able to face rejection, <clears throat> because that was not the first and definitely not the only time that I went into an audience, I went into an audition and the people were not impressed that <laughs> I did not get it, did not get a part in the show, right? Or sometimes they would like me, but you know, I'm a short guy. I'm five five. Sometimes I'd be too short for the role, or or maybe too tall. That never happened, but who knows? So you know, there are many different factors that come into it. But being able to face that rejection time and time again, I would go out on audition after audition after audition after audition just not get things. And then I would get them. And the same thing is true for real estate. I look at deal after deal after deal. I mean, I analyze over a hundred deals for every deal that I end up actually getting. So that was important. And also being able to sort of just market yourself. And I mean, look, I'm, I'm doing a video interview right now. I feel very comfortable realizing that, you know, hundreds, thousands, you know, tens of thousands of people might watch this or Oh no, I'm getting nervous now. No, just kidding. But <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like there could be lots of people watching this. I feel comfortable with that. I feel get comfortable getting on. I've been on stage. I run a meetup. We get a lot of people there. I've emceed a couple of big real estate events here and there. And 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 I don't have a problem with, with getting up on stage and talking about me, talking about myself and the business I do. I feel comfortable with that. So so those parts of sort of the performing aspects have have translated really well into uh, my current profession. Well, and one of the points you touched on there that I think is really important is when you said from the, from that anecdote, you had said, you know, when you really tried to embody the role, you got the reaction, but when you tried to force it and tried to get the result, you know, and I think just in life, so many of us are, are trying to force the result without doing the necessary actions. And I just, I love that story and that message from there because I think it's just so true, right? So many of us are trying to show we're this thing and we, you know, we've attained this level of success or result, but we kind of forget, you know, the steps that are necessary for us to actually get there. And so I know I, I love that story. I think that's really important. And then, you know, being a sales guy, you know, I, you know, anybody that can stand rejection over and over again, you know, I don't know <laughs> if I could stand on a stage and, you know, sing a song or any of that stuff, but, you know, I mean, I can bang my head against the wall, you know, a couple hundred times, you know, cold calling people and, and trying to get that same reaction or that rejection. And I just think that's so powerful. And 
so empowering and so powerful just from the standpoint of, I think that's so important again, just in life. Right. I mean, we've just got to continue facing that rejection and, and whatever it is. And we just learn from each instance. Right. You know, just just as you learned from, hey, you know, I tried, you know, I, I actually lived and played the role and, and I got a really strong reaction. And then after that, I tried to, you know, really force the, the outcome. And, you know, and I think especially in real estate in market like today, it's easy to try to force the result instead of really putting in the work because, you know, everybody can kind of put on rose colored glasses and, you know, and kind of get the the returns they want, you know, they're 15 plus IRR, but the reality is, you know, what are kind of some of the dynamics in the submarket and, and in that particular offering. And so, no, I, I just, I think, I think those are both really powerful. So I appreciate you sharing that. So I want to dig in on the construction. I didn't, so I didn't, I'd never heard that before. I didn't know that your first, you know, and this is, so how long ago is this? Is this pre Airbnb and VRBO? Like when you're renting it out, is this, or is it not, is it not too far ago? So I was curious. I actually did a little research. One of the chapters of my book talks about it. And so I was curious to know if Airbnb was around because I didn't know about it at the time. So technically Airbnb was around, although I, I had never heard of it, but because it started out on the West Coast and, you know, this was the East Coast and it, I guess the word just hadn't traveled. VRBO was around, okay? And I, and, and I was aware, aware of that and, and VRBO used to be uh, Home Away. I don't know, there was some sort of merger. I was, a, I was familiar with Home Away first and then VRBO, which, it, which they're calling Verbo now. My daughter, the other day, I guess it came up on her. She's, she, I don't know, on YouTube or something. She was like, I don't know. She said something. She's like, Verbo. She's seven years old. I'm like, oh yeah, they're calling it Verbo now. And I just was impressed that she knew what that was. So for me, I built a website and it's a very small market where I was. So I was number one in the Google search rankings for it because there was, there really wasn't any other competition. And being that I was in digital marketing, I knew how to do keywords and I bought a domain name and, you know, I just kind of did a little bit of stuff. I didn't pay and I didn't pay a dime for the advertising. And then I decided to try Home Away and Verbo and those were doing well. And then I actually went on one called Flipkey, which was owned by TripAdvisor. I think it's probably still around. And those were good. And then I went on Airbnb. I got almost no traction. I had one person actually rent from Airbnb. They trashed the place. They were smoking in the place. And so the place stunk from cigarette smoke. And I tried, and they also did other things, which we have pictures of. And I tried to get um, money, like security deposit from Airbnb. And I went into some sort of queue. I'm sure it's better now. This is many years ago. But went into some sort of automated queue and they only refunded me a certain portion. And I'm like, yeah, but they ruined, like I had to like get all this stuff dry cleaned. And they're like, well, you didn't provide pictures. And I'm like, but it's a smell. Like, how do I provide a picture of like, because we had to like get all the comforters dry cleaned and you know, a whole bunch of stuff. Cause it really did. It smelled like a chimney. And so I don't know how to, you know, so I, I was like, I didn't do Airbnb after that because it was a bad customer service experience, which like I've said, I'm sure it's probably better now, but at the time it just was subpar. Well, I think that just goes back to just overall, right. Diversification of strategy, right. You know I mean? So, you know, you had the, the different options you had home away, you had flip key and obviously Airbnb and, you know, your experiences are different with, within those. So was there anything from the construction? So like that, I kind of started the same way. I, I flipped a house and didn't know anything about construction. You know, I had some advisors and some folks that were kind of helping me through it, but I knew nothing about, you know, I'm not very good at even turning a screwdriver, right. Let alone, you know, kind of, you know, replacing a foundation and, you know, peers and all this crazy stuff. So what were kind of some of the lessons you learned from the construction process and were there delays or was it pretty streamlined? <laughs> yeah. You know, there was really very many delays because I worked with a, a home builder in the area who's been doing it for a gazillion years. And, you know, I, 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 I talk about it in the book. I've got this, I had a trusted team of, of advisors that I worked with on this. So a very good friend of mine was a realtor in the area, which is how I even knew about the area and bought the property. And it's a whole other story. So he sort of helped and introduced me to a number of home builders in the area that he knew and liked and trusted. And then there was one that I particularly gelled well with. And I designed the house actually myself. So I did it on the computer and then I would meet with him and he would be like, yeah, but you can't do that because of this. and You can't do that. Where's your AC? You know, you have to have ducks for your, your HVAC. And, you know, and he taught me a lot. But then we got to a point after months of doing this to where we had a completed design. We gave it to an architect friend of his who 
approved it, stamped it, you know, and then we went ahead with the construction. But I will say this guy, Alan, that I worked with was, he wasn't old enough to be my father, but he was definitely like a, a much older brother, you know, or an older cousin or something. And he, he did, he took good care. He took very good care of me. He taught me a lot along the way, but he knew what he was doing. So there wasn't that much of delays. And I always had in my head, construction always takes longer. I had done a few renovation projects prior to building the house. So I had bought the land, but I had lived in uh, the, the the first primary residence and then a second primary residence. And in both of those, there were renovations done to the unit that I lived in and they were co-op buildings. So there was also work done on the co-op itself. So I always knew things tend to go a little over time and a little over budget. So I had some, I was also, um, so what I did in the advertising world, I'm, I'm a project manager, right? That's what I did. I'm a, I'm a PMI certified project management professional. So I always knew we would want to pad. We always pad everything like, a little extra time, a little extra money, because things always take longer and cost more. So I already had that baked in. So from my perspective, I think maybe we went almost 10% over the initial budget for the house, but I already had that in like factored in. So it, 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 it was fine. And I think the whole house from like groundbreaking to certificate, certificate of occupancy was nine months. It did, the planning was like four months prior to that. I mean, there was a lot of planning prior to it, but from breaking ground to, to completion, nine months, I mean, it, it worked very well, pretty much a clockwork. But I think that's the, the builder that I had, that he's been in that area forever. And it wasn't an incredibly hot market. You know, I built this in, yeah, like 2008, okay, 2008, 2009. So there wasn't a heck of a lot of home building going on at that time. So there wasn't a real crush. Like right now when we're recording this episode, it's really hard to get skilled labor to do anything and, and material costs are very high. But at that time they weren't. So that's why that's why I did. I naively thought at the time, oh, I'm gonna get such a great deal on prices and then material and labor costs. And then I've since realized that I could have bought stuff at like, you know, 10% of replacement <laughs> costs. I should have right, bought, right. you know, apartment complexes back then. I would have killed it, but you know, you live, live and learn. Right? You got to start somewhere, yeah. right? You got to, yeah. so I didn't know, I didn't know the PMI certification. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's cool. I mean, so you've just got like all sorts of skills, you know, <laughs> all over the, I didn't, I didn't know that I, cause because of the digital marketing, I thought more kind of more the front end, you know, of that stuff, but that that's really cool. So I'm sure that helps. So let's fast forward a little bit. So you know, you built, you built this vacation home and, you know, you were able to have kind of a sustainable way to, to lease it out and rent it up for as a vacation rental. So how did that kind of transition you into becoming a passive in some other deals and then kind of where you are today with, with your full-fledged business? Well, I really started off um, more active, to be honest, but on a smaller scale, not on the large apartment complexes. And like I said, I did it as a hobby. It was something that I did on the side. Um, with the move to Miami, uh, what ended up happening was I, I ended up deciding that I wanted to do real estate full-time. And at that point, I knew that I wanted to do that actively full-time and that I wanted to syndicate deals. But I also knew that I also wanted to invest passively in real estate as well. And doing it passively immediately while still looking for my own deal as an active investor was something that could work very well, number one, by generating income for me from a passive perspective. And then number two, I could learn from watching other deals. I wouldn't learn as much as doing an actual deal, but I could learn through watching and seeing how other um, investors, excuse me, sponsors dealt with investors, spoke about their challenges, how they overcame challenges and things like that. So it was a really good opportunity for me. I mean, I have since invested in well over 20 syndications as a passive investor. 65% of my portfolio are deals that I'm a passive investor in. The other 35% are deals that I'm a, I'm a sponsor on. And, you know, I also have some passive investment from theatrical investments. And so that actually started, that was, I guess, the first passive investments I did were the, were the theatrical things um, back in New York. Yeah, I, I have the theater background, but really that, that's what my wife does full time. That's her full-time job. And she's on the business end of theater. She's not a performer. So we had invested in some shows. We had invested in, in uh, some, some shows that didn't do well. And then we also invested in a little show you may have heard of called Hamilton that did exceptionally well. Yeah, so, just okay. Well, so just yeah. a quick question. Just yeah, Hamilton did all right. It was okay. Yeah, well, was so right. some so, so some questions on that real quick. So yeah, like obviously sure. 
majority of folks will have some exposure to underwriting a multifamily deal or looking at an offering memorandum from some type of investment prospectus. So what does it look like for a Broadway show? You know, I mean, yeah. so how do you make, what kind of assumptions do you have to make? And I mean, you guys were in theater for somebody that might just be intrigued and say, Hey, you know, this is just another interesting investment for me to take a look at. What does the deal kind of look like? And, you know, just very high level, you know, what type of assumptions do you kind of have to make? Are you just going strictly based off of the, you know, the producer's projections or the company's projections? Well, the thing that's interesting, you know, my wife, like I said, this is her full-time job. I understand it very well. And, and I think the thing that, that makes me of value to people that know real estate that might be interested in, in Broadway is I'm very good at drawing the parallels between the two because they really are a lot of parallels. Uh, most Broadway shows are done just like a syndication, 506C, right? And, and there's just tons of parallels. So yeah, the, the producers will put together a, a thing called a recoupment chart which is very similar to a pro forma that you might find in a real estate deal. And, uh, you know, when, when we're looking at deals to invest in, you know, we, we realize that, that the, the Broadway stuff is super risky, like very, 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 very risky. So we are very careful about the ones that we get involved in because the majority of Broadway shows do lose money. Right. So you have to be very careful. Sometimes you get a Hamilton, but those don't happen very often, like once every 10, 20, 30 years. Like, so don't think that if you're going to invest in a Broadway show, it's going to be a Hamilton because it's not. But but you can do well. You know, some of them can do well. And we look at that recruitment chart that I was talking about, sort of the pro forma, right, that they have. We also really look at the most important thing is who's the producer who's putting it together, just like on a real estate deal. The most important thing is who's that sponsor? What's their track record? How do you feel about them, right? And then for us, we also look at, well, what is the show, right? What is what is the show? What is the property, right? Just like in real estate, like what is what is the apartment complex or, you know, storage unit or wherever? Where's it located? What, what What's about it? Where's the value? How does it look? That kind of thing. So that the same kind of thing for the show, you know, if we're, we're doing a show like, for instance, where we are, um, we're co-producers on, on Moulin Rouge, right? So Moulin Rouge, great show. Like, Everybody knows that show it was a movie, I think, 19 years ago at this point, you know, with Ewan McGregor, Nicole Kidman. So everyone knows the show. Great, fun show, cool. They use pop music, like awesome. That was already, we were interested from there. But then who's doing it? Who's backing it? And the people that were, were you know, behind it, the lead producers were people that have great pedigree. And my wife has deep relationships with them for years and years and years and years. And then the monetary part of it, you know, the recruitment charts and all that, that seemed to make sense. So we got involved and that that's how we look at everything. We sort of take that three pronged approach, look at what it is, but on, on the majority of them, just like the majority of the real estate deals, uh, I say, no, it's not right. But once in a while we find ones that are right and then we get involved. That, I had no idea. I mean, to your point around the, the majority of Broadway shows are kind of that same syndication, similar model, 506C, you know, didn't, I mean, obviously, you know, I guess, I guess it's just <laughs> not in my circle, but I just had, I yeah. just had no concept. So I know Past well, performance. There's so many fewer of those that are going on than real estate. There's tons of real estate deals, right? There's, you know, what do you have? Five, maybe 10 Broadway shows every season. So there's just, if you're not in that circle and you're not in the know, you're just never going to know about it. Yeah. And obviously I'm not. So, so now I know I'm not in the circle <laughs> yet, but at least I know, at least I'm competent on it or uh, that it exists. So I know past performance doesn't predict future success, but yeah. So you talked about Hamilton, you know, just to kind of get people excited or whatever. So, like, what is an exit? So like you invest in the deal, what does an exit from a Broadway show look like? And then also what type of multiple were we looking at, you know, in that, in a Hamilton for, if you're saying yeah, that's you like know, a home I don't want to, you know, talk too much about that because it's such an anomaly, right? Got it. I mean, okay. Okay. It's incredible, right? It's, it's beyond any real estate thing I've ever done, but it's such a, it's like a one in a million kind of thing, right? Got I it. Mean, Lou okay. Manuel, Miranda, he's a genius. He wrote an amazing show that really just hit pop culture just right. And and it, it's a brilliant show. And it's just, it's great, right? So when you're looking at those things, though, there's no exit, really, right? With with real estate, you get cash flow, right, during the hold. And then really, the majority of the money that you're going to make is going to be at the end, right? When you sell it, there's no like sale of the Broadway show. So it's really all cash flow going on. What happens is at the beginning, the investors get basically all the money that comes in, you know, after expenses, all the profit goes to the investors until they're made whole. And then there's a split 
with the investors and the producers. I mean, a show that does really well on Broadway could probably, you know, in, in some, you know, generally, and it all depends on so many different factors, but you could probably double your your cash in, in a, and again, this is not most, but in a successful show, probably double your investment in about three years, maybe, let's say three to four years, you know, generally, usually, but most shows don't do that. And then there's additional life beyond Broadway. There's touring productions and things like that. So when you're looking at, let's say, let's take Moulin Rouge as an example, you know, that's going to be running on Broadway. Again, you know, it was everything paused for the, for the pandemic, but it was doing extremely well. And so what's happening now, they're about to open in Australia, a production in Australia, a production in the UK and a US tour. So as investors in the original production, we get the right of first refusal to invest in those subsequent productions. So we'll have four productions of Moulin Rouge running by, you know, at some point in 2022. And so hopefully if they're all doing well, they're all, you know, sending us little tiny little passive investment checks and that adds up over time. Yeah. Well, that's, that's super cool. So, so you've got, you know, so you've got your, your real estate, you're kind of taking off, you're, you're, you're wanting to dabble into active. What's the process? You see so many people standing up these investment firms and, you know, Hey, I help busy professionals, you know, everybody has the same tagline. I help busy professionals invest in real estate to reach financial freedom or whatever, you know, and I, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the passive to financial freedom. You know, I, I like the concept. It just takes too long. Right. I mean, even if you're plugging 50 or 75 grand a year into a deal, you know, you're still probably looking at a 15 to 20 year time horizon, you know? And so I'm just, I'm just a little too impatient for that for at least most people, depending on, you know, your lifestyle and everything. But what was the process for you getting this business really off the ground? I mean, because six years ago, syndication wasn't quite as common as it is today. So, you know, what kind of got you into the syndication and what made you realize that that was kind of a direction you wanted to go? Yeah, you know, I think you're right. I just want to touch on that passive investment thing real quick and then get into the answer to your direct question, which is just that, you know, for me, I told you half more than half of my portfolio are passive investments. And so that is a longer time horizon, right? And it's not very predictable, but I love doing that. And so I've, I'm like dual tracking it, right? I'm doing that and I have goals that I that I try to reach from that perspective. And then I also have the active. And so I knew I wanted to do active right away. We talked about that because I, I had built the house. I had done a few other things. I had flipped some houses and, and, and I, I felt that I was very good being a little more hands-on. For me, what really tipped me off, what taught me about syndication just in general was just like your listeners are listening to right now. It was a podcast that I came across where they talked about syndication. And for me, I was like, boom, light bulb, because I had always wanted to go bigger. You know, I had bought the, the townhouse in Brooklyn and it was doing really well. I, we were living in one unit and we were renting out the other and we were, <clears throat> our mortgage was significantly reduced. We basically did a house hack, even though I didn't know what a house hack was. I don't know if the term existed at the time, but we we did. I actually the, the name of a chapter in the book. I call it the accidental house hack. But we did that, and then when we left, it was cash flowing. But when we moved, I I, I didn't know how to do it. I wanted to buy another one. Even when I lived in Brooklyn, I was like, I want to buy another townhouse. But like townhouses in Brooklyn are like you know a, a million. You can't even get something for a million. You know, you're looking at a million five, two million back then, right? Uh, now they're even more, right? Depending on where it is and all that, but. I don't have a million bucks, you know, and, and I don't know that I could qualify at that time for a loan that I would need to do that. So how do I get money? Like I have some money, I've saved up some money, but you know, how do I do? And then I learned about syndication. I was like, oh, wow. Because I had a lot of friends and business colleagues from being in New York for almost 25 years who knew about my things that I was doing in real estate as a hobby on the side. Uh, they saw I was flipping properties and making, you know, nice profits. And they, I had people say, Hey, can I invest in that deal? And I was like, well, I mean, it's like $30,000 to do the deal. And like, so if I cut it down to 15 for me and 15 for you, well, first off, I'm doing all the work, but then second, like how much money is it going to end up being for all the effort that's involved? You know, you're going to end up getting $100 a month. Like it just, it didn't make sense, right? It wasn't scalable. So I heard about syndication. I was like, oh, wow. Like I bet like, you know, I'll start off small, but I bet I can get my friends and family and people that I know to like 
start to invest because they some of them have even expressed an interest. And so I I, I went to the, you know the podcast the people who ran the podcast were doing a webinar like a seminar a live in person thing. And so I I bit the bullet and went to it and and met really great people and people who were actually doing it and and successful. And then I joined, uh, there, there was another person who was there who did it. And he had like a mentorship group. And so I joined one of these mentorship groups, one of these, these guru type guys. And, you know, honestly, I think there are some bad ones out there, but the one that I did was very good. And I don't think that I would have gotten as far at, as quickly as I have in my career without having a mentor. And for me, it was, it was one of those people. I think that people can find mentors in different ways, but I definitely would tell people that I don't discourage joining one of these programs as long as you've had the time to really vet it, make sure you know what you're getting into. Not everybody's going to be successful and then talk with people who are in the program. But I think that there there are programs out there that can be good for people. That's how I got involved and that's how I got started. Yeah, no, and I, I mean, and I agree. I think I think the challenge with the guru programs a lot of times is again, people want the silver bullet, right? You know, and I think that's kind of, you know, you got to know what to expect and then define which program is the best for you based off what you want. You know, do you want to be more tip of the spear finding the deals? Do you want to be strictly more on the capital raising side? You know, really understand. And one thing that you did that I really like is that you actually spoke to people that had been through the program too, right? And probably get kind oh, of good yeah. understanding of, you know, what am I going to get out of this program? And that's probably what led you to the decision on the one that you chose. Yeah. And and what I heard from people, which is something I've always heard about any of these kinds of seminars or programs, even when I was, you know, not in real estate, just you only get out of it what you put into it, right? So You've really got to put, I mean, look, it took me, I joined this program. And of course, when I went to join it, the the person who was running it had people on the stage that, you know, I've been in this program for one month and I have 16 deals, right? Because those are their their star students. And, you know, it's, it's not, it's truthful, right? But it's not going to, that's not going to be everybody's scenario. For me, it took me two years to get my first deal as a syndication, you know, first syndication deal. Now, I was not looking, uh, the markets I was looking in weren't really great. We had a baby. We moved from Miami to Boston. I mean, there was a lot of things also going on during those two years, but I was working it hard and working it full time, doing, well, doing real estate just in general full time. I was still doing some flips and things like that. But, you know, it took me two years to get my first deal. And then it took a year to get my second deal. Now I get deals on a much more frequent basis and, you know, but it, it took a long time to get there. And, and that's the thing that I tell people is, you know, real estate passive or active is not a get rich quick. It's just not. And it's hard work. And like, if, if you are thinking about getting involved in this business actively and you like the job that you have, but you just think real estate will be better. Like I would say, stay in the job that you have. Uh, especially if you're making decent money and funnel that money into passive investments. And it's going to take you, you know, five years, maybe, maybe 10, just depending on where you're starting off from and what your goals are, but you can get there from a passive income perspective. For me, I was just good at it. I loved doing it, especially with the change from New York to Miami. There wasn't a lot of job prospects for me in general. And I was burned out from doing it for 20 years in New York, like working crazy hours. And I was like, why don't I, you know, let me give this real estate thing a shot. And I loved it. And it was awesome. And I don't regret it. And it's been fantastic. But the first two years, man, they were tough. Well, and I love, I love that transparency. Cause I think that's the, that, you know, that's what the majority of people are trying to get into it to get away from something. And the point that you made about if you like your job, you know, ultimately it turns into another job, right? There's this certain sex appeal to it, you know, for some reason that I think everybody's like, oh, real estate investor active full-time is like this grandiose, you know, you just, just get a fly in private jets and, you know, spend tens of millions of dollars every day, you know, and it's not <laughs> like that. I mean, it's a grind and I just appreciate, you know, the two years and then also the year after. Cause I think that's the other thing is like the law of the first deal. And, and I think that's kind of a place where I'm at personally is, you know, you had some success and then, you know, had a couple things that happened really quick and then they just fell through. And so now it's like back to what you had talked about before taking that rejection it's just, it's coming full circle, right? I mean, you're going over and over again, you're reviewing deals, you're staying clear and concise on what your expectations and your return parameters are. And you've just got to keep driving forward, you know? I mean, just keep taking those punches, you know, keep going to those auditions, keep taking that rejection. And, you know, 
and ultimately, you know, I'm a true believer and, you know, you get, like you said, you get what you put in, right? So if you continue down that path, ultimately it's going to work out probably not in the ma- manner or the, the time frame that you expect, but, you know, I just think that's awesome. Cause I think that's so key to just kind of your entire career, you know, and everything kind of through that, you know, now it's allowing you to be more successful in the real estate side as well. Yeah. And also it's nice now that deals come a little bit more frequently. <laughs> that, that does, that does make it a little bit uh, nicer as well. So let's, so well, let's I just have a, I have a wide funnel now, you know, after yep. being in the business for six years, I have a wide funnel. I still think the ratio of deals that I actually get involved in is probably the same or, or maybe even more, you know, maybe even the smaller ratio that I, that I actually do want to get involved in, but having that wider funnel is helpful. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about this book a little bit. So you've, I mean, you've actually been successful, you know, writing articles for different publications, Forbes and and, and many others. And so, you know, you've got a knack for it overall, but what made you kind of really want to come out and, and write a book? You know, for I, I run a meetup here in Boston and a lot of people who are interested in investing passively would come up to me and say, Hey, I'm interested in investing passively. A lot of times it was maybe like their first deal. And it wasn't deals that I was doing. It was just a deal that they had come across and, and I would spend some time with people and, and kind of help them out. Cause that's what I like to do and, and, and show them. I'm like, well, you know, as a passive investor, like, well, what is this number? How did they come up with that? And so I would spend a lot of time doing that. And, and I just thought sort of almost both selfishly for my own time, but selflessly to give to people, like, what if I wrote it all down and gave it to people like <laughs> so that they can analyze the deals themselves. So I wrote that book uh, and I wrote that book uh, over a year ago now. And it's really freaking boring. It's a terrible book. It's like 80 pages and it's the densest, coarsest, horrible material you've ever read. And there's it, there's good information in there. John, you would probably really love it. But for the regular, for a regular person, for a regular human being to read it, they're going to, you know. And I, I kind of sensed that when I read through it my first time. And I reached out to somebody that I, so when I was, Working in the advertising world, one of my CEOs had written a book and he worked with somebody, a writing coach. So I reached out to the writing coach and I was like, hey, you know, what do you, first off, remember me? She's like, of course I remember you, man. I love you. How are you? We hadn't talked in a few years. And I'm like, hey, look, you know, what do you think of this? And she was like, this is boring. This is horrible. <laughs> like, she's like, the information in here is good, but like, no one's going to read this. And this is a church. She's like, she's not a real estate person. She understands the basics of real estate. She's like, I can't even get through it. Like, it's so dense. And you need to wrap all of this in a narrative. And then I spent a year with her help going through and 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 write, writing like rewriting the whole thing and and figuring out okay here's this concept here's a story that i have that relates to it and then i'd write something and then i'd send it over her it'd be five pages and we'd go back and forth on it and she'd be like what did you think about this tell me more about that how did that make you feel right like it comments in the word doc and then we'd get done and i'd have 20 to 30 pages and boom that's a chapter right and and so it kind of grew from there. And so the the book is really my story. It starts from me knowing nothing to me where I am today doing air rights deals and 1031 exchanges. So basically anyone along their path of real estate can can come in. And if it's if they're more advanced and they're reading at earlier chapters, hopefully the story is interesting. And I've tried to put a lot of humor in there. So hopefully it's just a good read. It's called Backstage Guide to Real Estate sort of giving a nod to the, the the theatrical background that I have, but that it's about real estate. And the, the subtitle is Produce Passive Income, Write Your Own Story, and Direct Your Dollars Towards Positive Change, which is a little something that we didn't really get a chance to, to touch on today on the podcast. But all the deals that I am involved with um, need to have some sort of positive for the community um, involved. I'm very much not a slumlord but looking to enhance communities, uh, revitalize and elevate uh, the living standards for the people who live in them. So there's a little bit of, uh, uh, you mentioned the articles I've written. I, I had an article on Fast Company recently about investment as activism. And, 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 and we can do well and make a lot of money as real estate investors, but we can also, we can do that by being ethical and, and by doing good. We can, we can do well by doing good. 
And so that's something that's important to me and, and part of every deal that I'm involved in. Yeah, that's awesome. And I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think money is a tool and it really just enhances the person that you are, you know? And so now, you know, if you're able to make more, you're able to impact more because, you know, can't always go out and swing a hammer on, you know, Habitat for Humanity project, you know, if you've got your family or business dealings, but, you know, if you could write a check that could help expedite the project or, you know, add another unit to the, to the footprint or whatever the case is, but well, I'm going to have to check out the, the older denser one because I, you know, I, I love that stuff. I mean, I just like to, you know, I mean, just like you, I just love to to digest information, you know, and I just, I'd love to kind of well, read the, through some the, of your thoughts on it. Is it, is it already in the incinerator end, or is it still available? The very, very end of the book, the last like chapter, it's like after the epilogue, I put two other chapters in there. You're going to want to see the the very, very last chapter. It gets super dense and really into the weeds. I, I, but it's, it's in a more consolidated and readable format. So I think you'll, you'll enjoy that one at least. Awesome. Well, and I'll have to check out the new one too. I mean, cause I think that's one thing just in general. I mean, again, the feedback you're getting from your, from your writing coach is just so clear. And I think that's something that I'm trying to do is just in general, you know, with the podcast, with my content, with anything we put out there, you know, make it more narrative based, right? You know, people want to kind of know the genesis and the origin. And we, we, we get so caught up in the, you know, the specifics, you know, Hey, show me the pro forma, you know, what is it going to perform like, but the deal story, right. You know, Hey, what's this community talked about the activism. Hey, you know, we're going to, you know, do whatever food drive, or we're going to donate, you know, school supplies or whatever. We're going to make, you know, beautify the, the, the pool or different areas, right. To kind of just get more enhancement about the community, more pride in, in the property and stuff. And I, and I, and I just love that. So, um, yeah, man. Well, this was, uh, this was super fun. I mean, obviously all over the place, uh, to be expected, you know, with your blended background, I love it, but let's, let's dig in. I know you've touched on it a little bit, but just as far as the cash flow stack goes, you know, so the cash flow stack is the W2, 1099 business income and passive income you know, with your background, the thing is you've got that diversification, you know, and so from, from you, where's your cash flow coming in from right now? You know, is it, you talked about active investing, passive investing, you know, you've got the real estate, you got the, the Broadway play and the syndications, where, where's your cash flow sources today for, for your family coming in? Well, it's, it's, it's all over the place, you know, and I think it's important to have things diversified. My, my wife has got a, a W2 job. I actually draw a salary now, which I didn't for a very long time from my company, Chenny is the name of the company. And, and, and so uh, I, I have a salary from that. So that's W2 as well. But then we make money from, you know, the, the syndications, we, there are fees involved in that. And, and some of that flows through the company and some of it comes to me directly through a, another entity that I have. And um, that other entity also, I have other investments and other, you know, syndications and things like that. So, you know, I, I have your passive real estate income. I have uh, cash flow, right? I have cash flow from Broadway when Broadway's up and running. That's kind of that spigot turned off during the pandemic, but it's turning back on now, which is exciting. The two W two sources of income, and that's that's basically it. I'd love to invest. You know, John, I know you have a bunch of other businesses as well. I'd love to to diversify into investing in some more other businesses and get other streams of of passive income. But for me, it's really about trying to, you know, I mean that purple book, Kiyosaki, right? Uh, really open my eyes to you know, having multiple streams of passive income and, and, and wanting to, to build towards that. And that's what I've been working on. That, that's awesome. And well, and I think W2 gets such like a bad rap, right? In general. And, but I mean, it's pretty cool to be able to take a W2 from your own company, right? I mean, that, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean that's pretty cool. No, you know? I mean, so there's it's nothing wrong good. with that. And I mean, yeah. like you said, I mean, to each their own, I mean, it's just <clears throat> entrepreneurship isn't for everybody. And I think it's and going back to, to define it. I mean, I'm actively doing stuff. So like legally, like I have tax wise, like I have to take it. So yeah. I can't be like, oh, well, it's all just profits because it gets taxed differently. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I have to pay myself a reasonable salary. In the beginning, I didn't have to because I was literally losing money. I was not making money. But now that my business has gotten to a point, you know, we, we, you know, I, I do need to do that. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's wrap up with the contrarian three pack. So is there one investment that stands out kind of within your portfolio that you would say is more contrarian than, uh, than any of the other ones? Well, yeah. I mean, obviously I think it's pretty obvious the Broadway stuff, right? I mean, it's just super risky. It's really Hail Mary, but it's something that's important to me, you know, just like the the helping communities, I'm really about the arts and, and, you know, having that background, I really want to promote the arts. And I also think the arts can, can be a catalyst for social and societal change. So it's important to me philosophically, but it's risky monetarily. 
Yeah. Well, and I think that's so important when you're investing, it doesn't have to be black and white. You know, it doesn't have to be strictly returns. You maybe can take on more risk or you can take a lesser return if it's providing a benefit to a greater community that that you want to be a part of and enhance. So, so I know we talked a ton of business. I mean, just like me, you know, we could chop it up and talk this stuff all day. Like we just love this stuff, but outside of business, I mean, what do you, what do you, what do you, what's your favorite thing to do with friends and family? Oh, well, my favorite thing is to spend time with my kids. I have two young children and they're awesome. And we do all kinds of stuff. I mean, I, I can't think of an activity we don't do. We're trying to get them to ride bikes right now. They love their scooters. We like going out in the park. Uh, but when it's winter time and we can't do that, my kids love skiing. My seven-year-old skis way better than me. I grew up in Florida, so my my wife grew up skiing. She's amazing. And uh, we just got, she just turned four in February, but just before she turned four, we got her upright on skis too. So that's kind of fun. Uh, we, we like to go out. And I, I think we're just kind of like regular people like to go out and do regular kind of things. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. I'm I'm jealous. We we can we got them in tubes so far. We don't have them on. We don't have them upright on skis. We got them in tubes and sleds. And, you know, we can push them down the hill and they'll fall off. But you know they don't they, they don't have the skis yet. So we got a little ways to go. But yeah, that'll be something fun to try coming up. And then what offers you the most fulfillment in life? Helping others, and and, and I and I say that you know, and that may sound like lip service, right? But I mean, we if you think about like all the things that I do, it really is about helping others. I mean. I got my meetup where I help tons of people who are interested in doing real estate. I help people through my business, through creating passive income, number one, but number two, by helping out those residents. I'm also involved in a lot of other things. Like there's a there's a charity around here in Boston called Caritas Communities that helps prevent homelessness in the greater Boston area. I'm very involved in that. And so I just, I don't know, I like helping people. I'd, I'd say that's pretty clean and concise. No, I, I respect that and appreciate that. And I think that's really what this is all about, right? Ultimately, how can we help others get to their goals? And and that's to me the biggest impact as well, right? You know, it's it's good to feel seeing somebody kind of empowered to to attain and what their aspirations are. So, well, yeah. man, this has been such a fun conversation. You've got so much going on. You got deals. You got a book coming out. You got all sorts of stuff. <laughs> What's the best way the audience can get a hold of you out there if they want to learn more? Yeah, the book and everything, it's all available on Picheni.com, P-I-C-H-E-N-Y.com. I'm also putting, you know, the articles and all that other kind of stuff. There's some good educational material on there too. So uh, I would recommend people check it out, P-I-C-H-E-N-Y.com. Awesome. Cool, man. Well, Matt, this has been so much fun. Thank you again. And looking forward to seeing where you take things here in the future. Hey, thanks. It was a pleasure being on here. I love... I, I, I really enjoyed watching you, John, for a while now on LinkedIn, seeing your posts and hearing your point of view on a lot of different subjects. Uh, it's, it's a real pleasure and a treat to be on your show. So thank you. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. Until next time, live fulfilled. Thank you for listening to Contrarian Cashflow. I would greatly appreciate it if you left an honest review, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode, and share with someone you feel would find value. Until next time. Think different, earn different, live fulfilled.